This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The giant salvinia is an aquatic evasive plant that's been affecting some of Mississippi's waters and is becoming a real problem for some of the fish and other creatures that make these waters their home. Our guest today, Dennis Rickey, is here from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks to talk about ways you can help stop the spread of this invasive plant and maintain the health of our waters. Also, Dr. Majors here, ready for your pet questions. So give us a call this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring it's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline dot org. Always like to remind you that if you miss part or all of Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday morning at six. So good morning. Hope that everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Libby, you've got some events that you want to tell us about. Oh, I do. Let's see. There's a lot going on. Spring, I guess, is when we all want to get outdoors, even though the pollen is yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah, I've got one ear that's closed off right now, and I think it's, I'm blaming the pollen. The Mississippi Gulf Coast Audubon sent us uh, a list of their wonderful field trips. Uh, this coming Saturday, that's on March the 30th, uh, Spence Woods in Hancock County, Jason Pyron is going to lead a, a field trip. That's Bottomland Hardwood Forest. They're close to the Pearl River. And Tuesday, that would be April the 2nd, uh, Don McKee's leading a trip on Dolphin Island. I wish that I could be there for that. He lives there on Dolphin Island and has birded it for years, and he's just the best person to lead those trips on Dauphin Island. So if you want to learn the spring migrants coming into Dauphin Island, he's the person to learn it from. And then on uh, April the 6th, there's uh, Dave Reed is uh, leading a trip on Biloxi's Back Bay, Hiller Park. All three great trips. And if you're interested in going, uh, go online, Mississippi Coast Audubon, and um, let them know you're coming so they get an idea of how many people. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Clinton Community Nature Center, April the 6th through 8th. They want everybody to know they've got the Monarch Festival going on, which is a great time. They t- tag Monarch Butterflies, which mm-hmm. is amazingly tiny, tiny little <laughs> dot they put on there, a little pinhead. And other researchers are involved in this migration count, and it gives them an idea of uh, where monarchs are going and when they're arriving and when they're coming back. And then at the Natural Science Museum, Ocean Bound exhibit is going on. Scuba divers feeding fish Friday at 10 o'clock, and then again on Sunday at 2 o'clock, which is a real fun. You can walk the trails and time it just right and watch the fish feeding the scuba divers are fun to watch and then uh this coming tuesday our our guest today dennis rickey will be giving a lecture at the museum about um the exotic plants that he's talking about today all right uh again a reminder of our phone number it's one eight seven seven mpb ring it's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. In fact, we do have an email here to share that says, 
I've seen this female mallard in this tree twice, and he sent along a picture. Uh, Once there was a male mallard below on the ground. When I approached them to get a closer photo, they flew to the nearby lake. I have heard of wood ducks that nest in trees, but not mallards. Is this something that they can do as well? Anybody have any, any thoughts on that? I should know that, and I don't know if mallards. <laughs> so many ducks nest on the ground, which is probably what they're talking about. I need one of the good birders to call me and tell me if <laughs> mallards nest in trees or on the ground. I thought they were ground nesters. Well, it, it's a black and white picture, so it's a little bit difficult to, to tell, but it looks like oh, um, look that the... the uh, Maybe it's not. I know there are tree ducks that mm. nest in trees, and there are... It almost looks like the duck is just kind of standing there, so it's hard to see where the nest might be. Yeah, I can't tell what that is. No, I can't tell. All right. I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll take this with sure. me. Sure, okay, great. We'll yeah. have an answer next week we if always we like to follow up. today. Right. Uh, the other thing, and this was kind of a sad story I heard on the news the other day, a show dog that was flying home to Amsterdam after her latest competitive event in Louisville, Kentucky went missing at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport for four days. Oh, she's now been found. That That's good. I had not heard that part of the story. Uh, returned to her owner. But the 22-month-old Staffordshire Terrier broke out of her crate in the airfield when workers were loading the crate into the cargo area and apparently was loose in the woods around the airport for what this says is now four days. So, uh, like I said, I had heard this story on the news the other day, but not had heard that she had been found. So that was really good. But could, could you imagine, it, it was an, a lot of feelings going on there. First of all, the, the handlers were not the owners. And so the owners lived in the Netherlands. And can you imagine, they've got you've got this prize dog that you're showing for these people, and it just disappears. I'm sure they were panicky. And then, you know, the owners. And then the poor dog, you know, uh, roaming around in the woods like that, just not knowing where it was. Uh, scared out of its mind. So it's good to hear that this had kind of a happy ending. So, Dr. Major, we've talked about this before, but maybe you could remind us of some just some general tips uh, traveling with pets, maybe both kind of on a road trip or then if you, if you do uh, tend to fly somewhere with your pet. You know, the Staffordshire is a very strong dog, and I suspect that it was ready to go home or whatever, and they can break they can break. Uh, even a good a good kennel, which they require a hard-bodied kennel for the travel. But uh, I would suggest always ID for your dog or, or cat if you're traveling with either. Uh, I do recommend microchip, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and pets have been returned that have been found. And we routinely, for strays or animals that are brought in that uh, we don't know, uh, we we do scan and check, which is important. And we've uh, we found more than one over the years that uh, had a microchip and were able to communicate with the owner. So that's important. Uh, as far as travel uh, in your car, it's always good not to have that as the first trip if you're going, say, to Atlanta from here. Uh, get the pet in the car. Uh, it's better to have a carrier, especially mm-hmm. for cats. Uh, and I see a cat up on the dashboard occasionally. Uh, we used to see the old ones on the rear had the blinking lights on them. The, the Persian cat that was laying on the, you know, the toy. But uh, it's better to have them uh, in a carrier uh, simply because they, you can become distracted. Uh, worst case scenario would be the cat causes you to have a wreck. 
gets onto the brake pedal or something like that. Now, as far as dogs, it's good to have some sort of restraint, seatbelt type restraint, uh, where you can actually restrain and keep the dog from uh, being hurt when you suddenly jam the brakes on. I remember one dog was coming to the emergency clinic for another reason, but uh, the owner had to jam his brakes on, and actually the dog broke the windshield, uh, but was okay from that. It was a hard-headed dog. It was German (laughs) Shepherd, and uh, not the German Shepherds are that hard-headed, but still, this one did not have any injuries really from that, So, but it can happen. So restraint is important. Choosing where you get out to exercise your pet uh, is very important. Uh, cats, I really am reluctant to even get them out of the carrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can provide food and water and uh, litter box, but uh, cats have a remarkable ability if you take them out, even on a harness, for escape. So we don't want that. Yeah. Uh, also, I, you know, I saw once um, a lady had a, a cat in a small carrier, and it was kind of like her carry-on luggage. And I was amazed at how well-behaved the cat was, because I'm sure if it were my cat, the entire uh, cabin of the airplane would have been treated to him meowing and right. complaining about being in there. Um, so, uh, remind us what um, when you put the microchip in your pet, uh, is it uh, your name and uh, address? Uh, what information is usually on the chip? It's a combination of numbers, usually uh, probably 10 to 12 numbers. Uh, there's an international uh, microchip uh, as well, but the main thing is to have it microchipped and registered. If you're going to have the microchip done, it needs to be registered with the group. Uh, uh, that has that. There's different uh, brands. AKC has them. Uh, Home, Home Again uh, has them. There, there are several different microchips, and most of the readers that uh, read will pick that up and give you the exact number uh, that it is. You can then call, and it will tell you. You'll know which uh, group, so you can call and actually verify that, hey, this uh pet belongs to so-and-so mm-hmm. and then is it's in, injected under the skin and i imagine it's, it's about, a fairly it's about the size of a rice grain maybe a little bit longer maybe not as fat as some rice but uh it's injected under the skin and usually it's relatively painless uh the main thing would be the needle going in mm-hmm. uh and of course a good time would to do that would be when the animal is sedated but uh my little uh, Chihuahua, three and a half pounds, didn't even flinch when she got hers, which surprised me. I thought she'd cry, but she didn't. All right. Uh, we need to take our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll bring our guest into the conversation. Today, we're going to be talking to Dennis Rickey from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We're talking about the aquatic invasive plant affecting some Mississippi waters, the giant salvinia. Also, Dr. Major's here, ready to take some pet questions, and we always like to hear your brushes with wildlife. So give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 7464 Or you can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back in a moment, so stay tuned. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. 
Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Harfield. And our guest today is Dennis Rickey, a fisheries biologist from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. An invasive plant has invaded some of our Mississippi waters, and we're talking about that today. Also, Dr. Major's here, ready to take your pet questions, and we always like to hear your brushes with wildlife, encounters with wildlife, if you will. So give us a call if you'd like to join our conversation. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So as I mentioned, our guest is Dennis Rickey. He is a fisheries biologist for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We're going to be talking about the giant salvinia today. But first, uh, Dennis, welcome to the show. And if you would, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I work for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks as a a fisheries coordinator. And I manage uh, several projects. Uh, I've been there for 30 years. And uh, one of the projects I manage is aquatic nuisance species. And that that includes invasive species. All right. Before we dig specifically into the giant salvinia, uh, what is the definition of an invasive species? Uh, To understand what an uh, invasive species is, you need to first um, know the difference between an exotic species and a native species. Um, An exotic species is... um, any species that, and its seeds, its eggs, its spores, uh, or other biological material that is capable of spreading or propagating that species, that is not native to the habitat where it's found. Okay, so some sometimes people use the terms non-native, non-indigenous, or alien as synonyms for uh, exotic species. Okay. Um, an invasive species is an exotic species uh, whose introduction into an ecosystem uh, in which it is not native uh, is likely to cause environmental harm, uh, economic harm, or harm to human health. So there's two things that, that are necessary uh, for an in- invasive species. They're not native, and they're harmful. Okay, they're causing harm. Now... Typically, people think that, well, these are always species from other countries. That's not necessarily true. Uh, they're, they're a, red, a, a species that's native in the United States, take, for example, the red swamp crawfish in the southern United States, transported up to the Midwest or to the Great Lakes, can be invasive. You know, blue, blue catfish, which are native to Mississippi, stocked by anglers, on the East Coast, you know, uh, is having uh, impacts to uh, red-breast sunfish populations in those streams. So it's not always, um, basically, it's not native to the the habitat or to the water body or to the area where it's found. Mm-hmm. Um, and some examples people may be familiar with are fire ants, Chinese tallow trees, kogon grass, kudzu, the insect emerald ash borer, some fish, tilapia, silver carp, which jump, mm-hmm. black carp, um, some aquatic plants, giant salvinia, like has been recently found at Ross Barnett, water hyacinth, um, pythons in the Everglades, wild hogs, zebra mussels, you know, brown tree snakes, um, and some plants that we commonly find. You know, at at garden centers such as um, Japanese honeysuckle, uh, wisteria, bamboo, 
English ivy, mimosas. So, um, so, and I guess the thing, and I know with kudzu, if I remember that sort of the history correctly, there was a good intention when it was introduced, uh, but then unforeseen consequences happen. I guess. So it's not always someone is out to kind of destroy or harm the environment or whatever. Sometimes it's just a result of of nature. I guess. That's correct, and not not all non-natives uh, or exotic uh, species are are harmful. You know, some of our crops that we we grow for food, wheat, potatoes, are not native to the United States, but they're not invasive. Um, yes, there have been um, well-meaning efforts with kudzu for erosion control, um, with nutria for to have another species of fur bearer to harvest that. Um, the intentions were good. Uh, they escaped, and uh, they became abundant, and now they're causing uh, economic harm, you know, and damage to the environment. So they have become harmful. So uh, when we talk about the giant salvinia, uh, do we know how it got established here in Mississippi? I think that... Let's go back to the perhaps the how it got established in the United States. Okay, it, it's native to Brazil, and I think that uh, probably the the scientific literature shows that it was an aquarium release. So people had it in their aquarium as an aquarium plant, and instead of disposing of it properly, they dumped it into natural waters. Mm-hmm. How that we got it in Mississippi? I know the first case that we got it. Um, an individual went to visit his relatives in Louisiana. He saw the plant. He liked it. He put it in his little pond that he used to water goats, and uh, it took over the pond. Um, the case in, in Ross Barnett, um, since it was found in, in around boat ramp areas, uh, it's we could uh, probably assume that it came in on a boat trailer mm. from another infested water body and uh, then it washed off that, that trailer. So it's that easy to get it started. <laughs> it is that easy to get it started. Um, I can't say for sure how it got to Barnett, but those are you know, probably the ways. Yeah, We're going to be visiting with Dennis throughout the hour, so if you have a question, you can give us a call. Also, Dr. Major's here, ready for your pet questions. And again, we always like to hear your encounters with wildlife as well. Uh, we were trying to do a little bit of research on the mallard duck. Libby, did you find out anything? Well, everything I read is they do nest on the ground, not in a tree. Okay. They, and, they fall in the group called dabbling ducks, mm-hmm. and that includes pintails and a lot of other ducks. And they prefer a nest on the ground. Now, whether or not this particular one has a nest in that tree, I don't know. Yeah, I can't tell if that's a mallard, but he he is right by a, a knot hole in the mm-hmm. tree. Is the reason the, the the person's asking us about it is it looks just like the kind of place that a wood duck would nest. But we don't think the mallard would nest there. Okay. And perhaps could it have just blown up to the tree and was just standing there. When, yeah, somebody you know, could have startled kind of in enough that it flew up to the tree and just happened to be there by that knot hole. Yeah. All right, uh, we've got a caller on the line, so we're going to say good morning to David, who has called in from Horn Lake. Good morning, uh, David. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, i got a pair of bluebirds that have been I've seen in my yard, and my question to you is um, um, I like to um, see about getting some houses up to encourage them to stay. 
and I like to know well uh, the height and the size box, and if it makes any di- direction. I mean, if it makes any difference, which direction that you mount them? Yeah, okay, it does, and I would encourage you to Google that online to get all the definite details. A lot of people sell a house that's particularly made for bluebirds because the size of the hole matters. It's a good idea to have a, a box that you can flip open one of the sides and clean it out after nesting, get the wasp nest out and all that, although I don't think it's essential. I mean, they they've have been nesting in um, knot holes for a long time, but it, it, most people like to baby them and clean out the nest a little bit, the nest box. And um, I can't remember exact height and the exact size of the hole, but it's easy to look that up online. And um, it does matter. You don't want them, you don't want the hot south-facing sun to be right on them all during the, you know, these first few weeks they'll be nesting. Uh, I've, I've noticed mine are looking in the nest boxes. I've got several boxes up that I think uh, would be good for bluebirds and have had bluebird nests in them in the past. So I've got two pair that seem to be inspecting, and I think one has started building now. Um, I know that it's you know, it's time for them to pick a house and get started. So if you want them to nest in a box this year, you need to go ahead and get it up pretty quick. What kind of food would you suggest to them attractive? If you really want to baby them, they love mealworms. If you can either raise them, and you can learn all about that online, or you can buy those. Uh, Wild Birds Unlimited, uh, I think they're selling them right now. I know there's several places that, that sell mealworms for bluebirds. But uh, they they don't eat the seed that that, mm. that most you know the the black wall sunflower seeds that most birds would come to your or a lot of birds would come to your feeder and eat. So, in I don't worry about feeding my bluebirds uh, anything. You know, I just I've got enough bugs for them to eat. <laughs> but if you want a baby on those, um, you know, you can do that. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks for calling. Glad to hear from you, David. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're looking for your uh, calls to join our conversation this morning at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. We're visiting today with Dennis Rickey of Fisheries Biology at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. So, Dennis, we're talking about the giant salvinia, uh, and you've mentioned a couple of areas where it's been found in Mississippi, but if you could give us an idea of the scope of the problem, where has uh, this invasive been found in Mississippi? Well, it's been found in uh, Pickwick uh, Lake, Bay Springs, Columbus, and Aberdeen in the northeast part of the state. It's been found at Ross Barnett Reservoir. It's been found in the Pascagoula River Marsh. It's been found in some ponds around the Leaf River, um, around Hattiesburg, and um, I think down in uh, Poplarville in some private ponds. So that's pretty much all all parts of Mississippi. Yes, it's uh, it's up at the top northeast corner of Mississippi and down to the Pascagoula River Marsh. So uh, potentially, uh, we think that. Uh, it, in the United States, the northernmost distribution is the coastal areas of North Carolina. So it could potentially uh, survive in uh, all of Mississippi. All right, so what uh, what makes it so bad? 
Well, what makes it so bad is it, it has a tendency to reproduce quickly and spread, and it will totally cover the, the entire surface of the water, and it gets intermixed with other plants, and um, then sometimes other, other non-native plants will form on the top of it or take hold on the top of it. But um, so when it covers the entire surface of um, uh, the water, sunlight cannot penetrate. And if sunlight cannot penetrate, then you don't have oxygen production going on. Okay, And it can also limit uh, fishing and boating and access to areas because the mats can become so thick you can't get through them. So that, that are some, that's some of the, um, uh, the problems with the plant. And it also competes with native aquatic plants uh, for space, for mm-hmm. resources. So it can outcompete them. All right, uh, we're going to take another break. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion about the giant salvinia with our guest, Dennis Rickey, uh, fisheries biologist with the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Uh, We're looking for your phone calls, and in fact, we've got Richard on the line from Natchez. We'll get to his phone call, and there's time for your call as well. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this break, so stay tuned. MPB listeners pay attention to quality. They look for quality in their work and their daily lives. If your business cares about quality customers, look to MPB. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting for more information. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest today is Dennis Rickey from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Today we're talking about invasive aquatic plants, the giant salvinia, and how we might be able to control it. It's a a problem uh, not only here in Mississippi, but in other parts of the United States as well. If you'd like to join our conversation with a comment or a question, the number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll have more with Dennis in just a minute, but we do have a couple of phone calls to get to. Let's start in Natchez. Richard's on the line. Good morning, Richard. Go ahead. Good morning. Thank you all for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I got a question about a wood stork. Uh, about four months ago in my backyard, I've got about a 80 or 100-foot cottonwood tree. And this big bird would come to the very, very top. He would stay there for 30, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. I did this for uh, about a month. I'd notice him about once a week. I haven't seen him since, and a big, magnificent bird, and I took my binoculars and Googled it, and it turned out to be a wood stork. Not a very pretty bird, but I just wondered what you might be able to tell me about a wood stork. Yeah, you live in a wonderful place to see them, St. Catharines Creek, what I guess it's wildlife management area, isn't it? Um, yes, or uh, Yeah, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's yeah. a great place to see them. Maybe your lone wood stork somehow lost his crowd because there are usually a lot of them out there. But um, it's a it, 
<clears throat> it's a majestic bird. Yeah, I almost laughed when you said that because they have such a funny head. They, they're prettier to watch from a distance if you're just looking for, I guess, good looks than um, when you're right up close. The, the head's kind of funky, but beautiful plumage. And uh, wonderful to watch. They soar and circle and all that kind of stuff. But St. Catharines, and when I've seen them there more, it's been September and October. And um, they nest in Florida, Louisiana, Texas, and pass through Mississippi. And you're right on the place where you'll see a lot of them. Well, that that that, that is the first one I have ever seen. Uh, I've driven through the St. Catherine Wildlife and seen some eagles and seen some other uh, uh-huh. you know, water waterfowl. But uh, I never saw a wood stork. And I saw this big boy up in the top of this cottonwood tree. And that's when I took my binoculars out and Googled it, and that's exactly what it was, a wood storm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you. I would encourage you to go go down to St. Catharines this, you know, in September or October. You can probably ask around or even call down there and ask them if the wood storks are there yet. It would, gotcha. Yeah. All right, Richard, thank you for calling in this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got some open phone lines if you want to join our conversation at one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Next, we'll go to John, who's called in from Pedal this morning. John, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Thanks. My question is for the Invasive Species Act. Uh, I, I live close to the Leaf River, and I know that uh, there was a giant Sylvania there. I want to say to uh, somebody from the state, they released some beetles or flea beetles or some sort of animal like that to control it. I was wondering if that's still part of the control process for giant Sylvania. And I'm done. Thanks. All right, John, thanks for the call. Uh, Dennis? Yes, that can be a form of control. You can use uh, approved aquatic herbicides. And uh, for some species, there is um, there have been screened uh, biological control organisms that just feed uh, on that species or impact that species. Um, uh, the problem is finding, uh, the getting them, releasing them, and getting them to survive. We did uh, manage to get some from southern Mississippi uh, where they had been released and uh, bring some up to, to those ponds and put them in, but it was late in the year. And I'm not sure how far north those um, salvinia weevils, it was a weevil that eats the plant, uh, how far north they can survive in Mississippi. All right. uh, Thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. And Dennis, I just did a quick search and saw some pictures, and it really does look like it's a very kind of dense uh, plan, and I, you can easily see how it could completely, you know, cover the surface of of a pond or or whatever. Also, I remember back from when you first told us about invasive species uh, causing environmental or economic harm, and and you gave us examples of both uh, environmental harm, you know, to the fish, but also, as you said, it limits the access to our waterways for boaters and anglers and that sort of thing. So this definitely is a problem. What is being done uh, to try to help uh, alleviate uh, the problem? Well, when we discovered it in the fall uh, of 2018, we were doing surveys for water hyacinth at Ross Barnett Reservoir. So we have been uh, diligent and aggressive in our control efforts, and that involves... um, 
spraying of chemicals uh, to kill it and also involves uh, helping the Pearl River Valley Water Supply District get containment booms uh, so that uh, the wind doesn't spread uh, the Salvinia uh, further into other areas where it is currently not. So it's confined to Pelahatchie Bay right now. And so um, the entrance to Pelahatchie Bay under the causeway there um, has been screened off with a boom. And the Pearl River Valley Water Supply District also prohibited boating in uh, Pelahatchie Bay starting in October. And that, that ban is still in effect. They'll probably lift it in a month, I think, as the warm water, warm warm temperatures get here and people want to boat and fish in, in Pilahatchie Bay. So we're trying to contain the spread. We're continuing to do surveys. And um, I think the last survey revealed that we're just about um, got about 90% of it or more uh, killed it. Uh, cold weather can also kill it. Uh, I don't think we've had enough this year to... Uh, um, help us out there. So as you're getting rid of it, and you say 90%, are there are there things that uh, maybe people who use the water, again, boaters, anglers, that sort of thing, need to keep in mind so that somehow it doesn't get, like, reintroduced? Yes, definitely. Uh, the most important thing is, I mean, if you have any aquarium plant or if you have salvinia molester in your aquarium, don't, don't release it into the wild, Okay. If you boat or fish in an area that has aquatic any any aquatic plants, okay, make sure that when before you leave that water body, all right, you clean, drain, and dry your equipment. By clean, I mean do a visual inspection, remove all aquatic plants from inside the boat, outside the boat, on the trailer, on the axles, anywhere. Uh, if there's a wash station. Um, spray spray your boat off. Uh, drain your live wells. Drain the water out of your motor. Uh, don't dump your bait uh, in the water. Um, and then allow your boat to dry for at least five days before putting it in another water body. If you can't allow it to dry for five days, take it to a car wash or use a pressure washer and use hot water. Okay, at least 120 degree water, uh, and spray everything off. So basically, we don't want people to spread the plant around. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, back to the phone lines we go. Frank's called in from Hattiesburg today. Good morning, Frank. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. Uh, I actually had a question about the Salvinia uh, as well. Uh, I was actually in Pelahatchie uh, two years ago in March and saw what looked like uh, Salvinia minima. Uh, and I was just thinking now that I know that uh, the giant salvinia is there. How do you, how do you actually tell the difference between uh, the giant salvinia and any of the other salvinia fern species? Okay, salvinia minima stays small. It looks um, like a circular leaf on the surface, attached to other little circular leaves. Um, it's if you know what duckweed looks like, it's a little bit bigger than duckweed. Mm-hmm. It has some yeah. hairs on the surface, okay? And while it can, Salvinia minima or common Salvinia can, can be invasive, usually we don't see it as invasive in Mississippi. Giant Salvinia 
what, when it's young, it does look like common salvinia. That's but, why I was asking. Yeah, yeah. and, and it, it has, if you get a hand lens out or you look under it under a microscope, the hairs on the leaf form like an egg beater or cone-shaped, okay? And it gets bigger, and it kind of folds up and and looks like, I, I call it pasta. You know, it really looks like some type of pasta. Okay. And, and, and uh, it gets bigger than common salvinia. All right. Well, I appreciate that. All right. Frank, good to hear from you. Thanks for the call. Let's just stay on the phone lines. Our buddy Timothy's called in from Louisiana. Good morning, Timothy. You're on the air. Good morning, y'all. Uh, my grandma said that a weed is a plant we haven't just learned how to use yet. <laughs> you know, and I'm wondering if you know, like the Israelis have just come up with a duckweed uh, food. You know, they, they're taking duckweed and, and desiccating it, and they're making falafel out of it. Okay, um, maybe there's a you know. Uh, uh, we could come up with a, har- a reason to harvest it and use this stuff. You know, then you wouldn't then you wouldn't have to get rid of it. People would be out there getting rid of it for you. <laughs> That's always you know, and, and American hyacinths. Good Lord, have you ever eaten a seed of those things? No, sir. You know, you just go along in your canoe and whack the head off, and then and then bust it open and and sun dry them. And I roast them a little bit in my solar oven, and they taste like chinkapin. And they're dang good, man. That sounds great. <laughs> All right. Uh, <clears throat> good point, Timothy. So, Dennis, is there any kind of research into to maybe that, that we could find a use for this stuff? Not not that I'm aware of. I mean, harvesting is, is a control technique. Mechanical harvesting and removal is a control technique that has been used for a variety of species. Um, Right now, that is occurring with silver carp and black carp and big head carp. Commercial fishermen are harvesting them and selling them. Um, There's a chef that's made some products out of them, fish cakes and fish uh, fillets that he's hoping to market. Um, In the, um, the Asian communities, people of Asian descent, have a long history of consuming um, silver carp and big head carp and black carp, and they're raising aquaculture over there. Yeah, that would, if we could find a, a use for Salvinia molesta, that would uh, perhaps lead to some people harvesting them. Maybe we could get the carp to eat the Salvinia, and then we could, you know. Yeah, I, that... I think our caller left. He needs to. Start experimenting a little. Like That's right, Timothy. So, yeah, if you if you come up yeah. with a recipe or something, uh, calls back, let us know. <clears throat> Not time for another break. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today we're visiting with Dennis Rickey, a fisheries biologist from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. And we've been talking about giant salvinia, the problem that it has caused, and ways that it's trying to be controlled. Uh, final break. Uh, still time for you to call in at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. We'll be back to wrap up the show after this.
Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Science. This hour, we've been visiting with Dennis Rickey from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, talking about giant salvinia, an invasive plant that we've talked about kind of where it came from, how it spread, ways that we can help uh, prevent the spread, and also ways to try to get rid of it as well. Um, so, Dennis, uh, when it comes to the giant salvinia and other possibly invasive species, are there ways that, uh, again, the people that use our waterways, anglers, boaters, people out enjoying uh, the great outdoors can maybe help monitor things? And if what, would, what advice would you give to people who are out and maybe see some sort of plant or something maybe that they've never seen before? Does it help for them to try to identify it and, and, and let you folks know about it to do, maybe to do some more research? Yes, it does. And so uh, reporting of um, non-native species is important. And there is a national database that tracks um, um, uh, aquatic nuisance species, it's called. And so um, from that, we know how many, uh, a minimal number of aquatic nuisance species that we have in the state. So uh, we encourage people to report it. All you have to do is take a picture of it uh, with the, the you know proliferation of cell phones. Everybody's got a camera in their pocket now. Mm-hmm. Take a picture of it and call us and send it to us by email. And what we need to know is um, where you saw it. Be as specific as possible where you saw it. And um, we will identify it. And if we can't identify it, we'll send it off somewhere for someone to identify it. It's important to, to catch uh, occurrences of, of plants and animals early because that's the best chance that you have to limit their spread and uh, get rid of them, you know, to mm-hmm. kill them, to stop them from spreading. Yeah. Um, that database right now, uh, let's see, it has uh, 68 non-native aquatic species in Mississippi as of 2018. And that includes 36 plants and 18 fishes have been reported. And I believe we have more than that. They just haven't made it into the database yet. Mm -hmm. Got another phone call. Let's uh, invite uh, Joe from Olive Branch into our conversation today. Good morning, Joe. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, You were talking about controlling the spread of salvinia by rinsing your boat off and did I under, understand you to say uh, not to dump your bait? Um, don't don't dump any non-native bait, okay, that you may have harvested from the wild. Young silver carp that are in the tailwaters or the spillways of our reservoirs look very similar to gizzard chad, Redfin shad and skipjack, which were all native species. So what we did was we changed the rule that if you're going to harvest bait in those spillway areas, it has to be put in a dry container or container filled with ice immediately because we don't want those species being used elsewhere. You know, we don't, we don't want them alive being used elsewhere. Um, there are non-native baits that you buy, such as uh, European nightcrawlers and um, 
Canadian nightcrawlers and Australian gray crickets. They don't seem to be invasive in Mississippi. In other parts of the country where you don't have native earthworms like um, Minnesota, they are invasive. They're eating up the leaf litter in the forest. So try to always use native bait. And if you do have non-native bait, dispose of it in the trash. Don't don't dump your bait bucket. Uh, I mean, uh, imagine uh, if we had... Um, the jumping carp, the silver carp in in our major reservoirs. You know, what? how would that impact your boating and your fishing, having big fish like that jumping in your boat when you're trying to ski or you're motoring along? You know, that, that would not be good at all. All right, uh, Joe, we appreciate your call. And so I guess <clears throat> you were those kind of the guidelines you gave us were not only to help with the giant salvinia, but as you're saying, other uh, potentially invasive uh, species and, and uh, fish and, and plants as well. Yes, actually, by state law, it it is illegal uh, with a heavy fine. It's a class one violation, so it's a two thousand to five thousand dollar fine to release, cause to be released to stock any aquatic species into our public waters without a permit from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. That includes native species, too. You know, if you want to release channel catfish or largemouth bass, you have to get a permit from Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks to do it. You can't stock any non-native aquatic species into your pond except for common carp, which is not native, goldfish, which is not native, koi, which is a form of goldfish, uh, and grass carp, which we approved uh, for and we use as biological control to eat plants. It's the only thing they eat. And for those, we recommend that you only use triploid uh, grass carp, which is sterile because it's got three sets of chromosomes. So if it escapes, it's not going to be able to reproduce. So um, the wildlife uh, Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks is part of their mission is to educate the public about Mississippi's natural resources. Uh, any seminars or functions coming up that you might want to promote for us? Tell us about. Well, on Tuesday at noon, mm-hmm. I'm going to be talking about uh, invasive species um, at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It's their um, their monthly lunchbox lecture or something like that yeah noon lecture noon lecture yeah and i'll I'll cover some of these same topics but we'll have some graphics we'll have powerpoint uh presentation with some pictures and some text and you know uh it's all about getting out the message of what what the danger of these species are what impacts they can have what harm they're doing and how the public can report the species and do their part into not spreading them, not releasing them and not spreading them. So as we sort of mentioned at the beginning of the show, Mississippi's not the only state dealing uh, with the giant salvinia. Have other states been fairly successful in trying to uh, control this thing as well as we have? It depends upon the severity of the problem. Um, Once a species gets widespread and large amounts of acres are covered, the, the, the only real thing that you can do is to affect some sort of control, to uh, open boat lanes, to spray coves, to, um, to open up, uh, to, to limit the coverage so that people can boat and fish in other areas. 
But that's expensive. Louisiana is spending millions of dollars to combat giant salvinia. And the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries didn't have that money. They had to get a legislative appropriation for that. So the response from state agencies always depends upon the resources available. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have a pot of money in Mississippi, either in our budget or that's been granted from the legislature to deal with a widespread uh, coverage of aquatic plants or to control um, fish such as um, silver carp, bighead carp, tilapia. So, And I think that's why it's important, as you mentioned, uh, those simple guidelines about washing off your boat, you know, keeping uh, the, the, the water that's not in a body of water, any kind of outside water, keep it out of there and so we can uh, try to avoid the spread of these things. And that is going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding is provided in part by listeners like you. Today's show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Dennis Rickey, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned. Up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.